So you can't say you're the country of independence fighters when you have Japanese collaborators in like the highest positions. <laughs> yeah. So it's like what glues them together is, well, we hate the guy up north, right? That's the only thing binding us together. And it's like, well, you can't use that alone because then people start to think, well, what's wrong with the guy up north? You know, it's like, oh, wait, they, they, they drove out of Japanese collaborators. Well, we, we like that. <laughs> it's like right it's like that's the reason like there's a reason why like most of these people's committees that form after like independence were like led by left nationalists and communists this is part two taekwondo and korean history explains everything this is Sam. This is Jay. And this is Southpaw. We need something else, right? And this became especially very important when the military were kicked out or when the Cold War ended and that anti-communism just like lost a lot of power was, well... We, as a state, are the sole political representative of the Korean race. This is like really the main thing biting South Korea today as a nation. Like you see this right during the Olympics, right? There was that uh, just very stupid controversy about like uh, the fact that you had people wearing hanboks. Ethnic Koreans, though. Yeah, people forget there there are Chosunjok, ethnic Koreans living in 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 China. Right? They're like a very large minority. They get discriminated in Koreatown too because there are ethnic Koreans from China. They only speak Korean, but they live in Koreatown, but they get discriminated by other Koreans. And same thing with ethnic Koreans from Mongolia who live in Koreatown. They get discriminated also. So, Well, that's the greatest irony of the state claiming to be the sole representative of the Korean race politically is that Chosunjok are like treated terribly in South Korea. They're treated much better in China. Like a lot of like Chinese, like ethnic Koreans in China are very like patriotic about the Chinese government, very pro government, you know, and it's for like a good reason. The person who used to uh, cut my hair, she's uh, ethnic Korean from China and she hated Koreatown so much after a while she moved back to China. Yeah, because why wouldn't you? Why would you want to be around people who don't think you're a human being, right? It's, and I'm not saying there was legitimate like worries. Like I get there's like geopolitical history about China's influence in the continent, but also like you can't like ignore that other side of like for like a good chunk of the Korean diaspora. Like you like you have like no legitimacy, you know, right? There's I think that was really funny. There was like a someone did a podcast with I think uh, a journalist who like did a lot of research on Chosunjok. And he, he he interviewed this one ethnic Korean who like said this very funny statement. It's just like, you claim, you, you call yourself the Great Han Republic. That's, that's what South Korea's official name is, right? It's like, Teaminguk is what it means. The Great Han Republic or Republic of the Great Han people, which is different from like the Han people in China. It's very confusing. Yeah, yeah. But um, he was just like, but you're half, you're half a peninsula. The country I'm part of is like a superpower. It's just this very funny story. And also that diaspora in China or other parts of Asia have a Korean culture that is less Americanized than South Korean culture, right? Like if you went back in time and compared these cultures to what Korea was like 300 years ago, a lot of the diaspora would be more similar than Korea today. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think I was like um, interested when you mentioned that the ethnic Koreans are can only, in Korea can only speak Korean. Like, I'm sure that's one of the reasons they're discriminated against, right? Is well, they can't speak English, so you can exploit them. You can see them as beneath. Oh, well, they don't speak English, the the great language, right? All right, let's continue. Taekwondo's ferocity as a killing art and fabricated history was the perfect tool to symbolize Park's new Korea. Pak elevated Taekwondo to a national sport, made it a mainstay in the country's mass games, and eventually introduced it in every classroom, all in the service of reinforcing a positive image of a strong martial leader. In 1972, the Kukiwon was established the same year that a rigged plebiscite passed the Yushin Constitution, which enacted a series of reforms that transformed the country to a boot camp. Guitars and long hair were banned, and police officers would carry around rulers to measure women's skirts. All things popularly associated with South Korea's dissident student population. Can you tell us a bit more about the Yushin Constitution? Yeah, so the Yushin Constitution was enacted in 1972, I believe, and under what was like, as I said before, a rigged plebiscite. It included legally, it eliminated term limits for, for the president and extended that term to six years. I think it was originally four years. This gave him the right to appoint one-third of the National Assembly, which was a national legislature, to dissolve the National Assembly rule, to appoint all judges, and to appoint all members of the Constitutional Committee, which determined whether laws passed by the National Assembly were constitutional. So he became like absolute ruler, right? Yeah. No, it's it's insane. Like, the, like the, like the fact this Constitution was ever enacted, it's just insane. You know, like, and it just keeps going. Like, like just more generally, the new Constitution gave Park the authority to take um, whatever emergency measures might be needed, whether... Whenever, uh, quote unquote, the national security or the public safety and order seriously threatened or anticipated to be threatened, so just whenever he wanted to. And so this period, he actually called it the era of emergency decrees. So I think from January 1974 to March 1975, a total of nine emergency measures were issued. These misuse made it illegal to criticize the Constitution, made it illegal to join a specific organization deemed anti-state, and made it possible for the military to occupy universities. The most severe and sweeping of all was infamous emergency decree number nine, spurred by the fall of Saigon and announced in the midst of Pakistan's national security offensive. Emergency measure number nine prohibited any criticism of the Constitution, any political activity by students, or any public presentation or statement describing or discussing any act which might violate the decree. The last decree was actually called by someone as a war on the Korean people. What's important to note is this was all just codifying what he was just doing already. Because, I mean, again, I mean, part of it's just such dictatorships forms, right? Laws are just kind of meaningless. It's just like it's a cover. Well, it's like what the U.S. did with lobbying. They were doing bribery anyway, so they just made bribery legal by making it lobbying, right? Yeah. And so now they're no longer corrupt. Yeah, you know, and I mean, like, just like lobbying, right? It's just, I was just genuinely shocked how flagrant it was. It's like, you know, I, you know it's always because usually dictatorships have like some like veneer of legitimacy right so there's always like oh well we're not like when we break the law it's all secret and hush hush you know or like they would like arbitrate like a rule that people don't really dispute and like take it to the extreme like no he just says i can appoint a third of of the legislators who gives shit (laughs) you know and that i think i don't don't quote me in this because i could be wrong but i think i remember reading somewhere in one of the elections pox party actually lost the National Assembly, but because of those one third assembly members, he ended up having a super majority anyways. <laughs> it's just like just like how like flagrant. To show how powerful this legacy is and how like things that happened in the past 
still affect today. For people who don't know, his daughter became president of Korea, and she also was disgraced and corrupt as fuck. But of course she's corrupt as fuck. And the fact that she was able to become president, right? That just speaks to that legacy, that things that happened a long time ago still echoes to today. Yeah, I mean, the fact that the National Security Act is still here after the dictatorship ended, after the Cold War ended, right? It's like, I mean, like, this lodge would, like, not be acceptable in, like, any, like, Western liberal democracy is a funny thing, right? It's just, like, like I, mean, I looked at a lot. It's still borderless to say just any organization deemed anti-state, right, is arrested. Like, when I was in middle school in Gwangju, I want to say it was, a, like, the year right after around the same time, the third largest political party in Korea was banned. Its leader was sent to jail, and he was recently, not even pardoned, paroled this year, was because he was accused... And the part he was accused of leading what was called a revolutionary organization that conspired to launch a pro-North Korean coup. The thing is, obviously, there was no evidence for this, right? The like the the main smoking gun was a tape that was later by the by the um the NIS, which is the successor to the Korean secret police. Uh, it turns out that tape was like heavily doctored, right? <laughs> the claim I think it had to, like I think it had like I think like a hundred members or something like that. They like never arrested anyone else. You're supposed to be like a hundred terrorists, and you only arrest like one person. It's like, you know, you, it's just, it's, it just happened. This is in the middle of like a, of what was considered like Korea's democratic period, right? Like this, the current republic, this just happened. Most people don't question it. So can you imagine if you just banned the third largest party and arrested its leader for like, what, like six years? The wild thing is Korea is always used as an example by the U.S. of an instance where their meddling, their anti-communism, like, made things better for a country and brought democracy to a country. So while there was like this blatant shit happening, dictatorships and like no democracy, the U.S. was using us as a symbol of like, see, we don't always fuck up. Look what we did for Korea. No, that drives me insane. I remember just reading this political article who was just arguing that like just using South Korea's example of like, why the U.S. is good as we being democratic, unlike those big baddies up north, you know, those dirty communists. Like, you probably know this better than me, right? That during the Korean War, the South Korean government committed the lion's share of war crime. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like Lee Sung-man like, was just like, like, he was just like a psychotic murderer. If you remove Korea as their example, then there's like no way of saying any of the shit, any of the foreign policy that the U.S. was doing was good. Yeah. I mean, even in Korea, you can't. Like, I don't know how this myth became so strong. Well, I know how it became strong. He took credit for something they didn't do, right? It's like people forget the leaders of the democracy movement, the student movement. You know, Inam Ig like goes really deep into 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 their book, Making of Minjung. The leaders of which of this movement were Marxist Leninists and left wing nationalists. Specifically, like eventually, they were actually aligned with North Korean ideology. Right? They called it Chuchisasang. Just like we don't talk about this, like it's it's not mentioned. Like even like the sellouts, right? Like someone, like one of Moon Jae-in's like highest ranking cabinet members was the leader of what was considered the the pro Norse faction of the student movement. It's insane that no one talks about this. It's just like well, there's a law. There's a law that doesn't allow you to talk about it, right? That's true. Yeah, it was the communists. It was like the people who were sympathetic to the Norse. Not like not all of them were sympathetic to the Norse. There's the different factions, but. It it was it was the leftists, the anti-Americans, yes, who brought democracy. It was the pro-Americans who did everything they can to stop that, right? They like exterminated an entire generation of independence activists to bring aboard like one of the most ruthless dictatorships in Korean history. I think that type of anti-communist erasing 
This also like affects, I would say, Western leftists where they think, oh, okay, yeah, there is leftists over there, but because they never hear the term communism associated with anything happening in the South, right? Only with the North, they assume then that they were like some form of anti-communist left or they weren't commies, right? They weren't Marxist or some shit like that, right? And it's like, no, dude, they were communists. These laws don't allow us to tell you that, but don't project your beliefs onto us. Yeah, well, it's it's the kind of people who say that like, oh, you know, most Vietnamese weren't communists. They just supported the Communist Party because they're anti-imperialists. They're like, no, that's just not true. It was, yes, that was, that was the beginning, but it there was other foundations. And same thing for Koreans. Like, don't tell us, we'll tell you, all right? Yo, yeah, it it drives it, it really does drive me crazy. Let's continue. For all its flair of restoring national purity, South Korean nationalism came from the same Japanese origin as Taekwondo. Park's reforms were directly inspired by the Meiji Restoration, where Japanese noblemen passed a series of westernizing reforms under the guise of restoring the emperor. Even the name Yushin, which means renewal, has the same Chinese characters as Meiji. And just like the architects of the Meiji Restoration, Taekwondo's leaders were not satisfied with taking over the country. They desired to expand beyond their provincial borders, even if it would take another war. Park, even as president, very much admired Korea's previous masters, right? And so people who deny what you were saying about him pledging allegiance to Japan and his emperor, it's like, dude, just look at his reforms and you'll see his admiration for Japan, right? So it seems like to a point we were talking about earlier, collaborators and people who admire Japan would be ideal for the U.S. because not only were they already this managerial class that knew how to work with foreign powers, but they don't actually care about full independence. They just want to accumulate their own personal power. So whoever is powerful, they'll admire and work with. And as far as like liberation or independence for the rest of the people, they don't care. They just care about their own personal power. Yeah. I mean, it's not just Korea, right? I mean, one of the things is how like denazification was, a, was, I mean, I don't want to say it was a myth, but it was, it was mythologized, right? It was even in West Germany, wasn't it like most of the original judges were like judges under the Nazi regime? It's just like, yeah, okay, we oppose you until, you know, until the war is over. Then, you know, well, it turns out the Nazis <laughs> are the biggest anti-communists, so then we'll just, we'll just keep them in power. A note to our loyal listeners, if you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. And then another point, I think this is something that fucks up a lot of Korean Americans, a misunderstanding, like this Yushin renewal, right, was about passing all these westernizing reforms. So a lot of Korean Americans think westernization means being less conservative, and then they associate all this conservatism to Korea. But a lot of that conservatism, just like actually a lot of conservatism that exists throughout the world came from the West. A lot of these ideas, like marijuana is one example, a lot of these like Western conservative values about drugs and like skirts and like behavior or homosexuality, a lot of that were conservative Western values that Korea adopted. And I think Japan has also talked about that as well with the Olympics happening and a lot of talk about China, right? A lot of people started recognizing that like this idea of gender and like non-gender neutral terms, a lot of that came from the British influence because they had to gender everything, right? Like even like with Korean beauty standards, those were invented 
by the West, by like, you know, Western surgeons and military people who wanted to deorientalize Asian women to make them more fit into their fetish, right? So a lot of these ideas that we think is some kind of receipt about like how bad Koreans are, and they think that is somehow a sign how good America is, it's actually the inverse, where especially for Korea, they didn't have as much British or European influence. They got a lot of that from the US. This isn't to say like Korea didn't have its faults, like what you were talking about with the Chosun period, but a lot of these like values that people think are Korean, like look at what it looks like and then look at a conservative Christian church, look at the Christian right in the US and see how much overlap there is. It doesn't take much connecting of the dots to realize, oh, that's Christian conservative values. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm very interested in, in Park Chung-hee. I mean, just because he, he's, I don't know, he's, just, he's such a very complicated figure. I mean, everything you said was true. That was like a major part of, of these anti-communist regimes in Korea, which I guess still exists to this day. You know, like the, the Christian right will always be a very strong bedrock, and it always has been to the Korean right. But also, a lot of people don't know this, but Pak's older brother was actually murdered by pro-American police officers during the Daegu uprising because his, his elder brother was actually a, a moderate leftist. He was a follower of Yo Eun Young. It's, it was because of that, that Pak actually joined the South Koreans Workers' Party for a while. And he was, he was um, actually nearly sentenced to death. One of the reasons he had such a bad relationship with Choi Hong-hee was Choi. I don't know to what position was actually involved and advocated for Pak's ex- execution. <laughs> Pak survived because he ratted out all his friends. But that he never forgot about that. Like when, when the coup actually happened, the, the U.S. were actually like surprised. I mean, they just ended up supporting it later because it was it was convenient for them. Well, there was actually a CIA invented policy enacted, I think, around the same time as the start of the Korean War. It's a term that we all know, plausible deniability. Yeah, yeah. But that actually became a foreign policy, right? So it's like they knew bad shit was happening, but they were supporting it by purposely not wanting to know too much about it. Yeah. But with Korea, like just from the documents that were declassified, it seems like the issue was... It was not that the U.S. cared about democracy, but they didn't trust Pak originally because they were like, well, we, we killed his brother. You know, we don't think he likes us. We don't know if he's like a reliable ally. Like we want a more pro-American dictator. Well, isn't there even like rumors that the U.S. was involved in his assassination? It's uh, yeah. I mean, well, the, the story goes that basically he was seen as like getting like too independent, too powerful. And after he assassinated like a. Not even so. I mean, just like a dissident in like another country in like Europe too. The U.S. said, "Well, he he's gone too far. He's pushed his limits." That's like allegedly how it goes. Just, I mean, there's no way to like prove this unless we get some declassified document like decades later. Well, I mean, he's complicated, but so is Cheongi. I think they're both complicated, but in reverse trajectories. I like to say that Ma, like we live in Pax Korea. Like that's to me South Korea. So like for me, the the way Pax out a world specific in more accurately, how we saw our country, Korea, was this was a country that was humiliated, from, you know, because of colonial powers. He, I think he very much acknowledged that, you know, but he's, you know, he said the reason why was because we were too weak. <laughs> like the, the Joseon dynasty was this horrible, like, kingdom that just like stole from its people. You know, it's like, well, look at Japan. Yeah, the Japanese were bastards, but they were also like us and they became an industrial country that the West was afraid of. You know, and so for Koreans become strong, we need to adopt what they did that made themselves become an empire. And like, so what was that? It was ultranationalism, right? 
it was this need to uplift the superiority of Korean culture. And like, it was like, I mean, a lot of it was mismaking, but that was also the beginning where like the state really like heavily invested in its traditional Korean culture, which, I mean, whatever that actually means, right? Just like, that's where you start, you know, that's where you start to see like the preservation of like traditional buildings and museums. It's like Mussolini, what he did, right? Yeah, oh no, it's very similar to Mussolini. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I like, I don't want to throw the word fascist a lot, but I mean, he was literally basing his regime, basing off what he learned in the Kwantung army, right? I mean, it's like South Korean, like, got, like state policy from like 1960 whatever to like 1987 could really be defined by right, rich economy, strong army, right? The the motto of the Japanese Empire. Well, you can't have masculine nationalist myth making without a martial art, right? But he also, you couldn't necessarily call him a Japanese crony after, after the war, after World War II ended. Well, right, he, he famously demanded reparations to fund economic growth. So it was very opportunistic and it was controversial because it was used to basically put a wall on that issue for a very long time. A lot of the things I'm saying is based on the listener understanding how toxic masculinity works. Yeah. So it's like you can admire somebody for being powerful, but at the same time, you see them as your rival too. And like, don't want them to one-up you. That's why chuds fight amongst themselves all the time. Like you look at MMA fighters, they're both right wing, they're both chuds and they hate each other. How can that happen? It's because the whole idea of like alpha male, the one alpha dog, right? The, the top one. Even during this time, he might've had problems with the US, but Korea at this time was still known as like the most pro-American country in Asia. Yeah. Even more than Japan. But he had problems with the US, but it's like he admired their power too, but he doesn't want to be subordinated to them he wants to be one of the big boys to sit where they sit a seat at the big table that's just like chud logic that's just how they are that just kind of ties very nicely i think to the next section only one year after the korean war quote-unquote ended western powers divided another asian country into a communist north and an anti-communist south Pak chung he rapidly deployed around three hundred and twenty thousand soldiers to vietnam in order to access the billions of dollars in u.s aid that he would use to fund the meteoric economic growth that many called the miracle of the Han River. The South Koreans had earned a reputation in Vietnam for ruthless efficiency. In 1966, a reporter from Time magazine wrote to Westerners, the process sometimes seems as brutal as it is effective. Suspects in Viet Cong are encouraged to talk by a rifle fired just past the ear from behind while they are sitting on the edge of an open grave, or by a swift cheekbones shattering flick of a Korean's bare hand. While we now look at such statement with horror, the South Korean military took pride in their role as America's Haitian, seeing Vietnam as a means to compensate for playing an auxiliary role in their own country's civil war. Many veterans would eventually use the counterinsurgency tactics they tempered in Vietnam to suppress pro-democracy protests in their homeland. The Koreans used this notoriety to evangelize Taekwondo to the Americans and South Vietnamese, even sending instructors to the Arvin Special Forces Training Center. But Taekwondo really exploded in 1967 when 250 Korean Marines repelled nearly 1,000 NVA and VC soldiers and dropped in. The mismaking Marines, as they were called, earned the respect of their American counterparts due to their preference for using their hands over a bayonet. Curiously, one of the first Americans to earn a black belt was Robert Walson, who first discovered Taekwondo when he was a CIA agent in Vietnam. So not only were Americans killing and getting killed in a war they had no business being in, but they got Koreans involved into this as well. And I always wondered about that. It's like, what the hell were we doing in Vietnam? Yeah, so um, there's a reason you don't learn about this in Korean, Korean schools anymore. <laughs> it, it was So basically, the Koreans were actually just like worse than the Americans in terms of like brutality. And this kind of gets into like an interesting point. I think 
according to America. I remember I was asking a friend about why Kamala Harris was so like brutal as a prosecutor. And a friend was like, it's usually the people from oppressed or colonized backgrounds who tend to be much harsher, you know, when because of their like desperation to like join the ruling class. So to be rich and powerful is to be white. To be white is to be cruel. I, I know a couple friends who's who's like have family members who are veterans in the, in the like the like Korean veterans, which is like a very unique kind of veteran. One of them actually like fought in the Vietnam War, I think his grandfather did. And I remember he just he said something kind of interesting was that these I don't want to say this what, what, how all of them saw it. Because I'm sure a lot of them are like they're like traumatized now. But that a lot of them basically saw Vietnam as redemption as strange as that sounds because there's a reason why when you ever read like a korean war book like a a history book on the korean war they like actually rarely mention south koreans you know part of that is just like because they don't give a shit about us but the other part is that we did play an auxiliary role in our own civil war we were used as like essentially um a rear guard you know protecting the flanks because they didn't because a didn't trust us and like b they said like they didn't think we had the will to fight like why would we why would we die for this war? Why would we kill our Koreans or something so stupid, you know? And so, but if you're a Korean, if you're like a general in the Korean military, right? That's kind of, or the South Korean military, I mean, that's kind of humiliating, right? It's like, this is your war. So Vietnam was a way to prove themselves. No, we're like, we're like fighters, you know? And specifically it was, it was meant, it was part of this I mean, program to instill pride. And I'll, I'll get into that later because it's, it's, it's kind of a whole, it's big, it's a big thing for me, but it was this idea about, if they see us in another country, you know, and and they see us basically as the baddest, ruthless, like killers, they'll respect us because they'll fear us, and that's and and, and like to the extent that was true, the world did fear the South Korean military after the war, you know, because we were seen as the crack soldiers. We were, you know, we were the Haitians, right? That was an actual word the State Department used to describe South Korean soldiers in the Vietnam War. They were merc- they saw them as mercenaries, you know. And part of the reason it worked so well was because a, a lot of Korean soldiers used the Vietnam War to like psychologically process what they experienced during the Civil War, because it was seen as very similar. It was like there was a communist Norse quote unquote invading, you know, a a anti communist South. Keep in mind, one of the main divisions was a White Horse Division, which was made up of North Koreans who joined the South Korean military. And so when the Chinese intervened and they ended up having to leave their homes and family behind, so they had like a special like chip on their shoulder. That's that's how you explain though, like the horrors you saw. Like these, like these, like I didn't add like this description I gave was very light. Like the shit they did was like I mean the shit they did made me lay look like another Tuesday because that's literally how they saw it. Like. Um, well, the easiest way I can describe it is they brought a lot of these tactics home. That's how we know about a lot of them, to be honest. So, for example, during the Guangzhou uprising, one of the most infamous stories is that a paratrooper, you know, because the paratroopers they sent in to, to suppress the protests were, were veterans in the Vietnam War. One of them took out a knife and yelled, this is a knife I use to cut the breast of, I think, 40 VC women. It's just like, this is what they did. Sometimes you're, like, amazed that Koreans even though they were right wing and military could do that to other Koreans during Gwangju or some of the other uprisings. But you got to remember, like, these are people who just had done that in Vietnam. So it's like, then in that context, it makes sense how they were able to do that to other humans. Yeah, I mean, it's like a very extreme version of internalization, right? Like some of the State Department leaks about the Gwangju uprising says like, 
the this looks less like suppressing a, a protest and more like a counterinsurgency operation in Vietnam. It got so extreme that they were not only using the tactics of of um, colonial oppression on their colonized people; they did it on their own people. But also, like, it did tap into something real, right? Like, it's like when you think of like kind of like the image of Koreans, which is like passive refugees. It it does debunk that, even if it's done in a horrifying way. And so you can understand why Taekwondo became so popular, and how like why and how it fed into like expanding the the legitimacy of militarism in, in in south korea well it's about feeling so victimized when the victimizers give you an opportunity to become one of them to become a victimizer they took it because at least they're now no longer a victim they have power now even if it means making others your victim even if it means making your own kind your victim at least it's not you who's the victim this is why misogyny, bigotry, and toxic masculinity increases after being oppressed. Because you look for someone weaker than you to become your victim. So at least that way, you're not a victim. This is why Western military and police recruit so heavily among the colonized, the oppressed, and BIPOC, even though they've been so damaged by the colonial state. This is your chance to literally join us, to no longer be the victim and be the one to point the guns at others rather than have that gun pointed at you. That's all the recruitment videos show, that you get to do the gun pointing, but it never shows who the guns are pointed at, because to be accurate, it'll have to show it being pointed at people who look like you. Trauma and subjugation can make taking other people's humanity feel like you're gaining your humanity in some twisted way. Taking someone else's freedom is somehow reclaiming your freedom, but it's all self-deception. You need to convince yourself that this is about your humanity and freedom, but you also need to justify your actions. People who've been harmed by the colonial state become so passionate about the colonial state because it's not about the state, but about themselves, that they matter, that they're part of the most powerful apparatus the world has ever known, that they are free, but they're not. They're also reducing more freedom. I mean, gaining white approval in general is about trying to count as a person. And what we've learned is the ones who count as people, as humans, dehumanize others. So we falsely think that's what it means to be a human. We'll even adopt their ideas of humans as destroyers. Taekwondo as a fierce martial art, or martial arts in general, is the promise, right? That you will no longer be a victim. But that's the drive of toxic masculinity also. The want to no longer be the victim, regardless of the costs. But this isn't an essentialized feature. Colonizers and white supremacy will look at BIPOC behaving badly and be like, see, we were right to subjugate them when it's the other way around. The subjugation caused this traumatized behavior. So it's not that Koreans naturally kill each other. Your occupation and subjugation turned Koreans against each other. So it speaks to the damage generationally of what feeling inferior does and the propaganda of like anti-communism. Because if you look at this context, right, like a lot of Americans have it in reverse order. When they hear about Gwangju, they just like can't fathom right-wing Koreans doing that to other Koreans. But then when they think about the Korean War, they can't see Koreans like just being engaged in a civil war, willing to kill half the other population, right? But it's actually the other way. It actually doesn't make sense at that time because there wasn't that much time for anti-communism or all this like fear-mongering. And Japan had just left. They didn't have that type of inferiority. If anything, they were feeling better about themselves. So 
why would they want to kill each other, right? So to your point that you were making about the military, that's why there's so many stories from grandfather or passed down word of mouth of like American soldiers giving Korean, not even soldiers, just civilians, like pitchforks or whatever things, forcing them to join the military and then making them stand in front lines and they had guns pointed at them to use them as shields, but to force them to fight because they couldn't trust them to fight because they weren't going to fight. And it's like, how did the North get so far South without any support from the South, right? So all this says is that Koreans really didn't want to kill each other. They just wanted to expunge and kick Americans out of Korea and just return Korea to Koreans. But then you have generations and time of inferiority and anti-communist propaganda. And then you have like Koreans trying to prove something to the world, especially to the US and Vietnam. It's like, don't fuck with us. You know, even though we're your dogs, we can bite, right? And then it makes sense then at that point, how this military can go back to Gwangju and start annihilating other Koreans, right? And only in that context does it make sense where they could get to annihilation then, or even like a lot of the stuff that was happening during the dictatorships and whatnot. But that takes time for that to happen. Yeah, no, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, that's that's honestly just a perfect way to just describe the history of terror in the Korean Peninsula. If you love the South Law Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room. Not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash Southpawpod. And I'm sure it drives you crazy when like non-Koreans are just so convinced that Koreans during that time so hated each other as if they had lived their whole life with this imaginary border there and always hating the other side, right? It's just like, where are you getting this idea? Actually, that's actually a very long-running like stereotype about Koreans. Actually, it's weird. It, I mean, it's not the same as the one after the Korean War. But this image of Koreans is just so like hateful that they could never unite, right? That's like it's, it's actually well interesting. I started under Japanese imperialism, I believe. You know, it's just there's always been this kind of like racist image of like Koreans. It's just like. Oh, we 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 just we just hate each other so much. Yes, you know, and it's you got even internalized by countries that wanted to help, but even the Soviet Union eventually like internalized this. And I think it continued because of actually this right wing Korean church influence, because these right wing Korean churches, like I said, chuds can hate each other too. These right wing Korean churches always fight with each other over money and then split up into like five other churches, right? Oh yeah. But in that case, it's like because of this like right wing influence and like this American westernizing influence on Korea. Yeah, you know, and I'm I'm not too harsh on those people to be honest, because I'll be honest, I internalized that for a long time because that's just how it, that's what I was raised with. I was taught to believe that it is Korean to not want to have friends, kind of broadly enough. So like everyone is your competitor, right? Life is a zero sum game. Your happiness is based on stealing someone else's happiness. This was like literally taught as a child by like my parents and my my teachers, and so I I did actually kind of have that that view of like the West is 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 fraternal and the East is which is kind of very ironic now I know. But then you go to the Korean countryside to the rural areas and it's like they don't have a lot of that. Especially when you talk to a lot of the old, old elders. For me, I think elder is different from when you think of elder, because my dad was born in the twenties. That's fair, yeah. Like he grew up in Japanese occupation. Like he lived in the twenties, right? 
So like I'm thinking of people like my dad or even older. I'm fortunate enough because I'm the youngest to be not that old. So to have that mindset, yet have a lot of that information passed down to me. But yeah, like a lot of that type of thing, when I talked to those old timers, you know, before they all died, like they didn't have any of that. You know, they made like, you know, sex jokes. You know, they didn't care if you walked around in your underwear. Like they talked about smoking weed back in the day. Well, wasn't hemp like a big agricultural product back in the days or something like that? I think so. And then like my grandma used to talk about like how she used that as a anesthesia. You know, a lot of times like women in a village were like also like the healers of the village. So a lot of that like internalization of competitiveness and we all don't get along. Those elders were now all gone. But when I talked to them back then, they didn't show any signs of that, which doesn't mean that there wasn't any of that. It seemed like with their generation, they thought of it more like, you know, some Koreans aren't like that and some Koreans aren't. Yeah. Whereas now we've internalized it as some cultural trait. Yeah. You know, um, unfortunately, I didn't have family members to rely on, but I did get to that point thanks to history. Like it was like, fortunately for me, my family is from Jeolodo. So I got to learn a lot about the Gwangju uprising. To be honest, it was just like very huge shock to me. Just like seeing those pictures and learning about the history about like hundreds of thousands of Koreans just like standing side by side because they couldn't, not because of themselves, you know, but because they couldn't stand how their neighbors were treated, right? I mean, obviously, it was a much more like a materials analysis of what happened, but like that was what it eventually cultivated in, right? It's just like housewives, shopkeepers, workers, the unemployed students all getting together, you know, to say that like, no, we're going to stand up for each other because it's what's happening to our neighbors is wrong. You can't go around bayonetting our, you know, our friends and our, and our children. That's rude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you know, fuck you. You're not, we're not going to let you get away with this. Yeah. You know, let's continue. While public opinion was turning against the war in Vietnam, Chue was building a global empire through what his, through what he knew best, showmanship. His legendary ace team were huge hits at military bases in West Germany, Singapore, and even Egypt. Aside from the usual ensemble of flying kicks and smashing bricks, brawling with spectators became a regular occurrence and a real moneymaker. Wherever the ace team went, a new Taekwondo gym opened up, many suspiciously overnight. Though uh, we can't talk about Taekwondo's reach abroad without talking about Jun Ri, the father of American Taekwondo. Ri was close friends with a lot of future martial arts stars, including Chuck Norris, who had learned Taekwondo while he was an airman stationed in Busan. In 1965, we convinced NBC to film his second national championship, but the suits at the network were so shocked by the violence that they only aired snippets. One thing Taekwondo had going for it was its brutally powerful kicks. In South Korea, the White Claw, which were plainclothes police officers who sported motorcycle helmets, found these kicks useful in cracking the skulls of students. But in America, they became popular in the national karate circuit. As um, one American karate champion explained, the Japanese had poor kicks compared to the Koreans. We kicked the hurt. All of this was possible thanks to the generosity of the KCIA, the South Korean secret police. KCIA had created a global mafia that extorted millionaires, ran businesses, tortured dissidents, and was shrouded in so much secrecy that even the U.S. government didn't fully know what they were up to. Thanks to its international associations, status as legal business, and a steady crop of fighters, Taekwondo had become one of the KCIA's biggest fronts. Many of Taekwondo's founding fathers had connections to the KCIA. Nam Tae-hee was on the KCIA bankroll from 1965 to 72. Kim Moon-young, the founder of the World Taekwondo Federation, the one in the Olympics, was a senior spy. 
Jun Ri had deep connections to both the KCA and the Unification Church, a cult founded by Sun Myung Moon, a staunch anti-communist whose followers popularly referred to as Moonies, who believe is the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. During Ri's second karate tournament, the same one aired on NBC, you could see the Korean ambassador and Reverend Sun Myung Moon sitting in the front row. Reverend Moon's son actually still runs this. A lot of people might have seen him because he has that crown of bullets that he wears, that he still runs churches, that they're all about anti-communism and everybody should have a gun. So that's still around. The Moonies were always just a big meme when I was growing up. I just thought they were like a silly cult when I first heard about them, but reading this book is, oh, wow. No, they were bad. The Unification Church emblem up until the 90s was a variation of the Imperial Japanese Rising Sun. They were affiliated with Ryuchi Sasakawa, the leader of Japan's fascist party and war criminal. They defended Nixon during Watergate. The Unification Church also publishes the anti-communist right-wing paper, The Washington Times. This might sound familiar because this is the same playbook as anti-communist Chinese cult Falun Gong, who run the anti-communist conspiracy paper, The Epoch Times, among many other outlets. But rather than Taekwondo, they use dance. But because of current anti-Chinese sentiment, the Epoch Times and their conspiracies have gained more legitimacy. But sounds like also part of Taekwondo's growth was funded by the Korean CIA, which kind of explains how rapidly they grew. Oh, you know, yeah. I mean, like, the Unification Church, you know, like Taekwondo, was one of the dictatorship's biggest fronts. Like, that's like that's where they funneled their spies, laundered money. It's <laughs> like... I don't want to say they were used as safe houses. I can't confirm that, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, just like the image is kind of horrifying. You think about that if you're just like a, like not even a dissident, you just like get, you just get unlucky and some KCA, some secret police agent kidnaps you and you end up waking up in, in a church where they believe that the founder of the church was the reincarnation of like <laughs> Jesus, Buddha, and like Muhammad or something like that. Especially in light of COVID. I think the world found out about a lot of these super religious culty churches in Korea, right? Because they were the ones like spreading a lot of COVID and are still very much anti-vax, anti-lockdown. A lot of the Korean American churches, at least in Koreatown, they're very much like that as well. A lot of the churches became where super spreading was happening. So religious cults still seem like a very big part of Korea's right wing and the Korean Christian right still seems to be growing. And like I mentioned earlier, Korean Americans are even more religious than Koreans in Korea. So listeners can draw their own conclusions from what that means, right? Whenever they're like, well, my Korean friend, you know, he hates North Korea or communists. Like, well, you know, keep that in mind, right? How religious and right-wing Korean Americans are, even compared to Koreans in Korea. But I did want to mention also something uh, that you brought up with Jun Ri and uh, how much of a showman and TV connections he had. I mentioned him earlier, Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee was really good friends with Jun Ri, right? So I think a lot of that showmanship and uh, TV connections and like myth building, I have to assume was like kind of going back and forth there with Bruce, right? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, they were all salesmen, right? Like that's that's really who all these big founders are, right? Like they weren't like geniuses. I mean, they they were good administrators essentially, right? They knew how to bring smart people in and utilize their talents and then because they were salesmen that's how they brought these people in they were good at taking credit for their work yeah like Hori and gracie created the ufc as a marketing vehicle to sell gracie jiu-jitsu right yeah 
and uh, Jun Ri did the same thing with these kind of expos and conventions to sell Taekwondo. And then actually through the help of Jun Ri, Bruce Lee did the same thing for his martial arts, did these like basically infomercial type seminars and expos and conventions to sell himself and his martial art. And part of selling himself was to sell himself as an actor. You know, it's all from the same template. And that's why you have all these weird clips of Bruce Lee going around because they're all from his infomercials. I don't mean literal infomercials like late night infomercials, but it was like the same kind of idea, this informational product seminar, and he would do demonstrations and it was all based around his martial art. A lot of those videos that people see online of Bruce Lee showing stuff like the one inch punch, those are all from his demonstrations. Well, something else I was thinking about was I remember you, I think we were were talking about Orientalism and MMA, but it, it made me think about so it's like one of the influences for this article was um, your your episode on I think it was decolonization I forgot which one but you mentioned this very interesting thing about how like there's like this whole like industry in Korea and America about like these like white dudes in the suburbs who learn martial arts or like learn taekwondo go to Korea so they can learn the real indigenous martial art but it's it's really all just this huge like show that has like no real connections like no Korean actually believes it it's it's just purely made to like market to these foreigners mm-hmm. which is a word like really officially started right? this is this is like when it went from teaching soldiers how to kill to trying to appeal to eight-year-old joe from edina minnesota who wants to learn this ancient martial art that warriors use <laughs> you know it's a weird spectacle right how do you just commodify i mean it really is just commodifying korean culture for the, well, you know, the, I don't want to say the consumption of white people, but I think that's a part of it. I think your uh, article itself will illuminate a lot of this. The KCA secret dealings will be exposed in 1967 when West German authorities had discovered that Yuni Sang, a prominent composer, had boarded a plane to South Korea without a passport or plane ticket. The KCA had kidnapped Yoon and over 100 other Koreans where they were tortured and forced to issue false confessions for spying for the Norse. The East Berlin case, as it was later dubbed, sparked international outrage, but what was less known was that many of the agents involved in the kidnappings were Taekwondo instructors. One of Choi's students, Kim Kwang-il, was later discovered to be one of the KCA agents involved in the kidnapping. Another Taekwondo instructor involved in the East Berlin case, Yi Ge-hun, eventually rose to the position of deputy director of the KCIA. So many of the leaders of Taekwondo were KCIA ops. Well, I mean, Kim Won-young was uh, like a senior agent in the KCIA. The, that's actually how he became the founder of the World Taekwondo Federation. So it's almost like your rank in Taekwondo has some parallel to your rank in the KCIA. Yeah, or, or your military, right? Che Hong-yi was a general. Like He probably he could have not have made Taekwondo as big as it was if he wasn't a high-ranking general. Well, I mean, Gillis says it very straight. He said that Kim Won-young basically stole the name. He used his connection as a KCA agent to like win a faction battle against Chue. What do you mean win the name? Um, so I mean the name Taekwondo is like I mean as we pointed out it was kind of controversial, but one of the things Choi Hongi likes to say a lot is he created the name Taekwondo, so that's why he's the founder. Because at the time there was still like a huge dispute. Um, I think even up to the sixties, like most Taekwondo masters refused to call their art Taekwondo. They still used to wear Tangsudo, which means um, or Taesudo, which means karate in korean there's actually a very interesting story behind it between those who say like um, tang sudo and i think the other name was tae sudo it actually depends on whether or not you kind of align with china or japan but it's um essentially kim Yong kind of changed that and made it like 
really cemented it being accepted in the Korean mainland. Part of that was kicking out Choi. This is the end of part two. Taekwondo and Korean history explains everything. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a 5-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pauls, hitting with the left. South Pauls, Sam, Paul, South Paul, South Paul.